This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon from the Graduate Center at the University of New York, one of your co-hosts for the channel. I just finished speaking with Nancy Frazier, Henry A. and Louise Liu, Professor of Political Science at the New School for Social Research in New York City, about her 2014 book edited by Kate Nash, Transnationalizing the Public Sphere, which came out from Polity Press. In this really interesting and important and generative book, Frazier takes public sphere theory, particularly as it originates with Habermas and the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory tradition, and asks the question of what has changed since public sphere theory was originally being formulated that forces us to transnationalize it today, and then what would that transnationalization of public sphere theory entail, hewing very brilliantly to the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory method, Frazier interrogates this question in the opening essay, which is then followed by a number of commentaries from a diverse set of scholars with different theoretical backgrounds and disciplinary fields, and then followed by one final essay by Fraser responding to her critics. In the course of our conversation, Fraser and I talk about the background of public sphere theory, about changes in what she calls the post-national constellation that necessitate this transnationalization of the public sphere. We talk about normative legitimacy and political efficacy and their relation, uh, touch somewhat on kind of recent developments with regards to the Greek referendum and other kind of contemporary issues that a critical theory of the transnational public sphere can address. I hope you enjoy the interview, and I urge you to go out and read the book. I'm now speaking with Nancy Frazier, who is Henry A. and Louise Lowe Professor of Political and Social Science at the New School for Social Research in New York City, and author of Transnationalizing the Public Sphere, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in Global Ethics and Politics podcast. Well, I, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you, and thanks for inviting me. Yes, we're very happy to have you on. Um, so before we get into the book itself, I was wondering if we could perhaps start um, by you giving us a little bit of background on your work and your research in critical theory and in public sphere theory, and perhaps especially how this book fits into the arc of your research in those areas. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I um, have uh, uh, Frankfurt School critical theory has always been an important uh, influence and strand in my thinking, along with. American pragmatism and some strands of French post-structuralism and feminist theory and democratic theory and so on. But within the Frankfurt School tradition, I've engaged especially with the thought of Jürgen Habermas, and it was his uh, first book, actually, 
uh, it's his uh, habilitation mm-hmm. uh, thesis uh, called Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere uh, that piqued my interest in my curiosity about the theory of the public sphere as a part of democratic theory and of uh, critical theory. And um, I think one has to really credit Habermas in, in effect with pretty much naming this category and, and calling attention to it in a way that was quite unprecedented. I think we all probably sensed uh, earlier that there was some important affinity between um, democracy as an institutional regime and the practice of free, unrestricted argument, debate, expression. Um, but and that that connection is, is was made clear actually uh, by Hannah Arendt uh, earlier. But it was really Habermas that that took this idea that one could conceptualize as an actual component of modern societies, a public sphere uh, in the sense of a a realm of discourse uh, pervade, especially through the media of the epoch, whether it's print journalism or later uh, the internet or visual media and so on, um, but that um, that this sense that there was a um, an area in which public opinion could be formed by means of unrestricted debate and discussion about the issues of the day that's Habermas's idea, and of course the idea goes along with the um, assumption that this public opinion formed through un. Uh, unrestricted uh, argument and communication, horizontal communication, should become a kind of uh, force, a a power, he called it communicative power, that should have some real capacity to influence and uh, perhaps under certain situations even constrain what public powers like states, formal uh, democratic powers can do, that they need to be responsive to and accountable to public opinion. And so it's this whole set of problems having to do with public opinion, the media, the relation between civil society and a democratic state, all of this is brought into visibility and uh, becomes a problem for democratic theory through Habermas's early work on this. And that's really uh, part of the, the essential background here. Now, this book was originally uh, um, appeared in German. It didn't, uh, it was belatedly translated into English long after um, many other works of Habermas, which were written after this one, uh, but had, had already been translated. And it was sort of the, the growing interest in his thought in general that led people to go back to this book and translated belatedly in the late 1980s. I think it's 89, actually. Um, And um, there was quite an interesting and lively reception in the United States, especially of the public sphere book, and lots of interesting debates. Much of the most interesting material is 
collected in a volume that Craig Calhoun edited around the same time uh, called um, Habermas and the Public Sphere. And um, that, um, I, I, I think it's fair to say that this concept of the public sphere may turn out in the end to be Habermas's most influential idea. And I, I say that even though, you know, the various other uh, more philosophical concepts like discourse theory and so on or communicative action um, might initially seem to be more significant. But the fact of the matter is that the, pub- that the concept of the public sphere that he developed has become a real um, category that informs sociology, media studies, history, political science, uh, political philosophy. Um, It's as if uh, it's hard to imagine what it was like before we had this concept. And it may be the case that when all is said and done uh, decades and decades from now, it's this that Habermas will be most remembered for. That's very interesting. Um, In in a minute, I'm going to ask you perhaps then to explain what your particular move is to transnationalize public sphere theory. But before we do that, I actually have somewhat more of a kind of process question but I think that one of the things that's most interesting and ultimately very lively about this text is its format, where there's a revised version of an essay you originally published in the late 2000s, then commentary by several scholars from different disciplines, and then your response. And so I was kind of wondering why you and then the editor, um, Kate Nash, came to put the book together in that particular form and what that process was like for you. Right. Um, well, my piece, now my, my memory, and again, we have to check the dates, is that my piece originally appeared in 2007, if I'm not mistaken, in Theory, Culture, and Society, um, along with, as you say, quite a, a number of responses. And I, um, If if memory serves, um, I visited a couple of times uh, Goldsmiths College in London where Kate Nash and Vicki Bell taught. They were the two guest editors of the special issue of Theory, Culture, and Society where the piece appeared, and they were the ones who had uh, drummed up all these uh, responses. Um, And we had um, all sorts of very... um, uh, intense and interesting discussions uh, about the my proposal to to think uh, in terms of a transnational public sphere instead of simply uh, as was tacitly somehow pervaded uh, by most of the discussion up to that point in terms of national public spheres. Anyway, it was one of these um, sort of contingencies. I was in close touch with. John Thompson at the time, who has a long-standing interest in the theme of the public sphere and who was also the director of Polity Press. And he found um, the discussion at Goldsmiths very interesting, and he suggested that Polity would like to uh, actually bring it out as a book. And then we began to think, you know, carefully about uh, whether there were other um, people to invite and how exactly to structure it, and um, Kate really uh, took the lead there, 
and came up with a, um, a very uh, intelligent and interesting group of, of comments, quite wide-ranging. And um, that was um, more than enough um, inspiration for me um, to, to try to think more deeply about the, the views that I had articulated originally and, um, and whether they were, you know, uh, could really withstand all the deep and probing questions and doubts that the other contributors raised. And I have to say that the, uh, my experience of trying to rise to that occasion and answer those doubts and objections pushed me to think um, much more deeply than I had before about um, what um, really would count as a transnational form of uh, democratic communication. Uh, and I should say that um, this whole uh, set of questions about the transnational had already, for me, become very, very pressing uh, in the light of work that I was doing about uh, global injustice and uh, and related questions, and I was very preoccupied about with relations between the North and the South and so on. So um, this was a great opportunity to, to try to... Um, you know, really push myself to think further and also to correct uh, what I now see was a major blind spot in my own earlier engagement with the concept of the public sphere, um, which goes back to the late uh, 80s or early 90s, um, in which I, like Habermas and like um, many of the other um, people who participated in those exchanges, had tacitly, in an uncritical and unreflective way, assumed some sort of a closed national society as the correlate of the public sphere. And, of course, in the, um, in the later uh, period, that, that whole question had become um, so contested that it was impossible to ignore anymore. Right. And on that note, maybe we can kind of get into the heart of the content of the book some now and maybe start there by asking you to perhaps give a brief overview of what changes in what you call in, in the book, in the essay, the post-national constellation that <laughs> leads you or leads one to transnationalize public sphere theory and perhaps what kind of background assumptions of public sphere theory are that need to be problematized. Right, right. Well, um, as I, I said, um, the there were really, uh, I think, two fundamental let's say, normative and, and practical ideas that were always central to my understanding of the public sphere theory that Habermas had developed. And one um, was the idea that it should be possible to distinguish, uh, at least analytically, between legitimate public opinion that was formed through genuinely open, unrestricted processes of communication that were truly horizontal in which um, 
you know, there was an, an easy uh, entry into discussion and uh, the interlocutors uh, could participate on a plane of at least relative um, equality. Uh, that would be distinguished from some kind of manipulated uh, public sphere, uh, you know, the fascist propaganda apparatus or um, the advertising canned kind of public relations industry. So that was a very crucial idea. And the second crucial idea was this one I mentioned before that that public opinion generated in in this uh, let's say genuine way should also um, actually matter it should be uh, become a, a a genuine force it should have some muscle it should uh, actually serve to influence and constrain the institutionalized uh, powers in the world uh, what people think matters and that's above and beyond the ballots that they cast but right the sentiment that is formed through debate about the issues of the day should matter and um those two ideas were for me um always what uh made the concept of the public sphere a a genuine concept of critical theory one that could be used to assess um, actually existing democracies and show where they fell point, uh, short on either or both of those points. Now, um, the problem is that, um, as I said before, I think that um, it's in a, in a way that's completely understandable, Habermas's uh, original book, Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere, was sort of tracing the emergence and the history of this public sphere, both as an ideal uh, through thinkers like uh, Kant and John Stuart Mill, but also as an actual institution um, that starts with a rather restricted public of uh, literate uh, property-owning males sitting around in uh, smoking cigars and, and <laughs> coffee houses and and having uh, reading newspapers to you know the larger idea that we have now with mass a um, uh, mass um, media and uh, broader uh, participation. Um. His history of all of this completely understandably turns out in retrospect to be the history of what what I would call the development of the sort of Westphalian model of democratic uh, governance and democratic communication, meaning it was taken for granted that we already knew what the political community was, what its boundaries were, who counted as a member and therefore who was entitled to participate, who had a right to be heard on equal terms, and and so on. We, we, we tacitly assumed that we knew who the public was, uh, namely, uh, something like the the adult uh, citizenry um, or the adult population uh, of an already constituted bounded community, and tacitly in this era, that meant in most cases something like a nation state that already had a language, a shared language of communication that already had a state, which was the the power to whom 
the communication was addressed, the power that the communication was supposed to be uh, reflecting on and holding accountable. Um, the, it already had a, a national media, um, a national press in the early days. I suppose um, in the 20th century it would have been a national uh, broadcasting system and so on. Uh, and very important, already had something like a national economy because as it turns out in Habermas's account, um, the emergence of the public sphere is tied very closely to the idea that, that you have um, economies that are nationally bounded, that states at various times have to manage and steer to avoid or mitigate uh, crises, that um, the original bourgeois uh, members of the public uh, are have a great interest as property owners in uh, paying attention uh, to. A, a, it turns out a great deal of the substance of public sphere discussion in the Habermasian model was assumed to be the national economy steered by the national state, and this was all to be discussed in the national language through the national media and by uh, the national citizenry, or at least that uh, part of it that was considered the active um, literate citizenry. And once you sort of fast forward to our century, um, it just becomes very clear how um, that very neat mapping and lining up of all these things around the national frame just doesn't hold anymore. Um, we have so many, um, uh, let's say, discussion uh, subjects that concern trans-border problems. Just think of, of climate change as one of the most obvious. We have diasporic uh, language groups that uh, ha- maintain an active a set of communicative institutions that don't uh, that that again cross uh, borders. We have um, polities that don't share uh, a language. We have uh, many many uh, cases in which um, the 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 problems do not line up nationally. The discussions are not national. The whole question of language, the whole question of the medium of of communication uh, is increasingly transnational and um, participation doesn't neatly line up with formal citizenship either. Uh, And certainly the whole idea of a national economy that is somehow um, bounded and and, effectively steered by a given state um, is we well we, we need only look at the headlines and what's going on in Greece and the EU or right. or whatever to see how under what we call globalization today or financialization um, this, the, this this assumption too is, has gone by the boards so it seemed to me that there were um, a whole set of assumptions built into the Habermasian model that no longer held and once you took stock of that then it looked like the whole 
idea of the public sphere could come unglued because it was no longer clear, at least to me, what it would mean to distinguish legitimate public opinion from illegitimate or manufactured public opinion. You didn't have shared citizenship to sort of underwrite the parody of the interlocutors anymore. Um, No longer clear what it would mean for public opinion to become an effective force when on so many issues we have trouble even identifying who the addressee of the opinion is. When we, when we debate climate change, we, we know very well that this is not a problem that, that any state, even a very powerful state like the U.S., can uh, solve unilaterally. So who exactly are we directing our, um, you know, our communication to uh, in, in the sense of a public power whom we want to act in our name? All, all, all of the, the, these sort of fundamental points that made it a critical theory are in danger, I think, of, of collapsing or becoming um, very problematic once we take into account the extent to which the Westphalian framing of public sphere theory is not adequate in our time. And I think it'd be, it would be difficult for me to kind of undersell to the audience how important the fact that this really is a critical theory of the public sphere grounded in the Frankfurt School is for this project. And that I, you know, I think one of the most important aspects of the book is your emphasis on both kind of attending to the imminent current historical situation while also looking beyond it for emancipatory possibilities. So I'm wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about what that particular perspective of the Frankfurt School of critical theory brings to rethinking public sphere, public sphere theory um, on a transnational scale. Right. Um, no, this is uh, absolutely um, central. You could, um, if you want, you could think of this as a certain uh, variant of left Hegelianism. That is, um, in, in, instead of a freestanding normative cr- critique uh, of the sort that Hegel famously objected to on the part of Kant as a mere ought. Uh, as opposed to that, the project is to try to understand how the norms that we use for critique um, are um, imminent, uh, have uh, arisen from within the historical context to which they then um, become uh, applied and used as a critical standard. So they are, they, they, the norms are supposed to have uh, be simultaneously imminent within the form of life, have some real traction through history, through the way in which they've emerged and the society has developed, but also simultaneously uh, be genuinely critical, have the uh, capacity to take distance from the given, not to collapse into it, to reflect on it and to condemn it. Um, but again, not as a mere ought, as Hegel would say, but um, by virtue of, of genuinely imminent possibilities 
for uh, transcendence. Um, that's the trick. It's it's not an easy <laughs> to square, uh, but that that's the sort of uh, I think the strategy uh, that is fundamental to to much of Frankfurt School thought certainly to at least uh, this strand of Habermas's thought. And it's the, 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 the approach that has always been um, central for me. So um, if we think that, that today um, that all of the major parameters of what make up what what didn't make up the Habermasian uh, concept of the public sphere are somehow out of line with one another. Don't line up. Uh, uh, don't map onto this sort of one clearly defined bounded unit, the the, the territorial state. Um, then we have to um, wonder, you know, sort of what we're doing here when we use public sphere theory. One option, which is, in, I think, uh, probably uh, very standard or widespread in media studies and communication studies, is to just treat the concept of the public sphere as a straightforward empirical category and then to study, you know, how, uh, who reads what uh, newspapers and uh, what their uh, reactions are and um, so on and so forth um, without having this, you know, this critical aim of um, trying to see the ways in which really existing democracy is blocked in our from 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 realizing itself in a full way in our context. Uh, another um, strategy would be the opposite one to sort of um, make it um, just sort of turn it into more like a freestanding normative uh, category and. Um, let's say, condemn the, um, the the democratic deficits from some external um, standpoint. And I think as a critical theorist, one doesn't want to do either of those two things, but find some kind of a third way uh, that uh, holds, to use the famous phrase Habermas developed later, to hold the tension between fact and norm together in such a way that you generate uh, some uh, critical um, traction. And that's what um, the problem I posed in the 2007 essay, Transnationalizing the Public Sphere. And I um, felt as I read the contributions to the volume um, that we're talking about now, uh, the um, Polity Press volume, um, I felt that um, there was many, many um, thoughtful and interesting uh, points raised uh, by all of the contributors, truly, but that there was a, a tendency on the part of several of them to kind of lose this um, distinctive left Hegelian idea of, um, of critique as simultaneously imminent and uh, capable of, of transcending. And in my response, I tried to show um, how, um, to my thinking, uh, a number of the contributors fell sort of off that uh, that 
difficult path uh, onto uh, either a, uh, a more empirical or a more um, freestanding normative approach. And, um, of course, that really simply shows how, how difficult mm-hmm. uh, the left Hegelian path is, but nevertheless, um, to me, very much worth the effort. Now, given that critical perspective, perhaps we can kind of get into two of the main areas in which uh, you find it necessary to rethink public sphere theory, and perhaps we can take these in turn. First of all, in terms of the normative legitimacy of a transnational public sphere. Um, Here, can you maybe talk a little bit about the importance of the question of inclusion, of who's going to count as an interlocutor, um, and how this question of who counts, and also the question of who is the addressee, um, which we'll get into in a second with the political efficacy question, but then what kind of changes from more traditional uh, criteria for inclusion need to be undergone? Well, I mean, um, the sort of um, the, the the Habermasian uh, formula was in, in in not not just in public sphere theory, but in his uh, discourse theory um, uh, as well, was that um, all affected should have the chance to uh, participate in um, in discourse or, in this case, uh, public communication. Uh, about a given issue, all um, with a stake, you could say, in the outcome. Uh, uh, and, and he used this phrase, all affected. Um, and I, that was um, very much my original idea. There might have been a time historically when it seemed plausible to think that, as John Rawls uh, did, that it was the sort of framework of the constitutional state that, in a way, was the most important determinant of effectiveness, and that if you you used uh, the boundaries of uh, state citizenship as a proxy for effectiveness, you could, you know, more or less make it fly. In, in reality, um, even at the height of, uh, let's say, the democratic welfare state in the, um, or the 19th century nation state, for that matter, even then, um, formal citizenship has never been a perfect or even a very good proxy for effectiveness. We only have to think about the history of colonialism and imperialism and so on to see um, – how exclusionary, let's say, that uh, approach turned out to be, and um, but but yet somehow um, the national frame had such a this or post or Westphalian frame, I should say, had such a hold over the political imagination that um, people, uh, political philosophers and, and politicians and. and and, and many, many people, um, unless they happen to be on the very short end of the stick uh, as a subject colonial population, for example, uh, somehow were able to overlook, um, you know, this and still think that the, that the, the citizenry, were, 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 that was a good enough uh, match. But today, I think it's fair to say that... Um, 
there are many people who 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 take a nationalist view and want to defend the national frame, but it doesn't go without saying. They have to actually make the argument because there's enough, um, you know, uh, uh, sense of um, of of a non-fit on so many issues. Um, so I I think that my first thought was that we had to really. Um, take up affectedness as a category in its own right and not, you know, try to do it through the proxy of citizenship. Um, then uh, I have to say that I, um, I I started to think much more about this question of affectedness and I began to worry that it was a little too amorphous um, um, th- this whole problem of the butterfly effect, everyone is affected by everything and so on, and that it, it wasn't um, specifying uh, enough what kind of affectedness uh, really mattered. And, that, and so, at, uh, actually, after I had already written uh, the first essay in 2007, Transnationalizing the Public Sphere, later I had, my thinking had continued and I, I came upon the, the idea that I called the all-subjected principle as opposed to the all-affected principle, meaning that everybody who whose interaction is governed by um, rulemaking bodies of whatever kind in a given in a given type of interaction um, was sort of subject to a a govern a governing authority a governance structure that had enough of the properties uh, that, say, states have as governance authorities to generate the same kind of, um, you know, significant standing that you wanted for, um, for, um, as a criterion. Uh, So not just somehow being randomly uh, affected any old which way, but being subject to coercive authority um, of various rulemaking bodies. And, and then what I liked about this, this phrase, all subjected, is that it sort of gives you the, the, the old idea. It, it's rhetorically powerful. It gives you this sense that, you know, where, where we were subjects, now we have to become citizens. And that's such a powerful historical trope in the history of democratization. It struck me that the next step now is um, all the ways in which even we in powerful states like the U.S. Um, are subject uh, to uh, so many um, other rulemaking bodies that, um, that in relation to which we don't currently have citizen rights but are really subjects in the old sense. Anyway, so I started to... Um, play with this idea that there might be an all-subjected principle. Um, and that, that sort of was how I handled the normative um, aspect of legitimacy and illegitimacy. Right. So now if we kind of look to one of the other important aspects of a public sphere theory, that in terms of political efficacy, how does, or how was that question of efficacy kind of traditionally uh, phrased or posed in public sphere theory, and how does it come to be transformed when we move to think transnationally? Well, this is uh, another very uh, difficult uh, question, and um, 
again, it's 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 partly an issue of sort of uh, retrospective uh, understanding. With hindsight, it's possible to see that when we all were taking for granted the Westphalian framing of these questions, we were assuming that the public power to whom public communication was addressed, uh, namely this, this national territorial state, actually had the capability to uh, deal with the problem about which the public was addressing them. So in that go, go back to that example of the steering the national economy, there was an assumption that there was a national economy and that the state uh, had the uh, requisite capability to actually assure um, a relative level of employment, uh, growth, uh, you know, uh, in infrastructure and, and all of the things that we expected a modern state to do to sort of keep economic life uh, afloat. Um, and so that was one thing. We assumed that there was adequate public capacity at the institutional level to deal with the problems. And we also assumed that, and I think this was the second thing, was the focus of, of much of the earlier discussion uh, in the 80s and 90s. We assumed that there were no blockages that public opinion could could actually get to the state and influence it, that there weren't all sorts of lobbying apparatuses and, and uh, humongous uh, Right, uh, sedimentations of, of private power, of uh, concentrations of wealth, and so on, that um, could outgun public opinion, so to speak, and, and capture uh, the state. So there had to be some sort of channel through which public opinion could be translated into public will and into state action. And you can see how that idea hooked up with very familiar Frankfurt School themes about, you know, manipulated public opinion, uh, manufacturing of consent, all of that kind of stuff. Um, Now, when we fast forward to the present, um, that second point about uh, public opinion getting through, there being being able to get translated into political will and public action, that remains a concern, I think, uh, everywhere, pretty much. And then we to understand that, we really need to talk more about the form of capitalism that our um, that we are uh, living in at the present, and the concentrations of private wealth, and so on. In multinational corporations, uh, global finance, all of this. Um, but what caught my attention even more than that was the point about public capacity. I think, and, I, and my, my thinking has developed on this point much further than um, uh, appears in the book we're talking about now. I think we can really see that there's been a, a very significant hollowing out of public capacity. Uh, uh, a lot of it has to do with the role that uh, finance and investors and above all creditors, it really has a lot to do with debt, um, 
uh, have assumed in a, in a global and transnational way as being the ultimate arbiters of what states uh, or even a, a transnational entity like the European Union, what, what uh, public power is allowed to do. When will the bond markets uh, you know, go crazy and say, no, 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 we're dumping your currency and you, you can't do that. Um, you know, uh, I, I think there's that this whole question of capacity is um, really significant today. And especially, again, I keep going back to global warming, but there are many other issues that are just by their very nature inherently larger than the scope, uh, the jurisdiction of any uh, state, even the, the largest and most um, powerful. So for many, many of our problems, both because of, of questions of scale, as in climate, and, all, and because of, let's say, runaway private power like global finance, um, we, we don't... Um, at the moment, um, have confidence that the pub- that the pub- powers that are supposed to be public, that our uh, our public opinion formed in public spheres, is supposed to be holding accountable. We don't have faith uh, uh, often that they are actually um, even could, if they wanted to, um, deal with many of our most pressing problems. So this is a deeply uh, troubling. Um, issue. Um, The problem is our public spheres are not transnational enough to deal with the scope of the problem, but neither are our public powers, Um, um, let's say, have significant, uh, sufficient heft or reach to deal with some of these problems. And um, there are, you know, many, many um, examples i think uh we could we could give today but that's the general idea right now we could i'd really like to impress upon the listeners that i mean all of the essays in this volume responding uh, to your original essay and then your reply at the end are incredibly rich and well worth going into in depth but so i don't monopolize all of your time nancy um i'd like to maybe just pick one and kind of ask you to uh, talk a little bit about about your response specifically here to Kimberly Hutchings' chapter in the book, and and kind of the course of responding to her chapter, which is uh, critiquing and thinking through the original article from the perspective of postcolonial theory. In your reply, you make a distinction that I find both very fascinating and incredibly important um, between what you call formal subjective conditions and then the contents of subjectivity. So, could you perhaps explain to uh, some of what that distinction entails and why that distinction is important for transnational public sphere theory? Yes. Um, well, I'm very glad that this is the essay you chose to focus on because I think it's um, a very, very rich and profound paper, um, uh, that of, of, of Kimberly Hutchings. Um, and basically, um, she goes back uh, to a part of, of Habermas's original book, Structural Theory of the Public Sphere, that people haven't paid enough attention to. And she, she, she asked, what, what about the sort of historical preconditions uh, that enabled 
people to think of themselves as members of a, of a public in the first place and to, um, let's say, um, imagine themselves as fellow members of, of a public uh, in, engaged in these discussions. And she, um, she suggests that um, in, in Habermas's case, Many of these uh, assumptions that permitted that stance of or that ability to imagine oneself as a member of the public um, were really tied up with being on the, let's say, the, the winning end of colonialism, uh, of having all sorts of um, confidence that you had a state that... Uh, could, uh, would, and should uh, protect you, at least in theory, um, that you, um, yeah, as I say, uh, as it said before, that, that, that you had the sense of being an, uh, of, of agency uh, in relation to history and, of, and of, uh, of, of, of it being even conceivable that through achieving democratic rights, you had a public power that you could, um, yes, make uh, the servant, uh, in a sense, of your jointly um, elaborated uh, public will. Now, when you um, try to, and, and, and Hutchins thinks uh, that I went much too quickly in thinking about what's involved in transnationalizing the public sphere today, I ran too quickly over all of this. And that if you um, take it seriously, then you have to have very severe doubts about whether the whole project of public sphere participation as a as an intrinsic component of a democratic self determination was not um, somehow um, already a Eurocentric project and that these assumptions, she thinks, um, were so foreign, let's say, so utopian uh, to subjects of the British crown in, in India or of uh, the U.S. in the Philippines or uh, you name it um, throughout the world that um, that that this imaginary did, was not wouldn't have, doesn't have the same kind of resonance uh, for post-colonial subjects today, um, and that there would be a certain um, skepticism, a lack of faith in being able to ever participate on a par with ex-colonial uh, masters in, um, you know, debate on, on terms of parity uh, on the shared transnational and global issues of the day. And um, I do think that uh, there was a, a level of, um, but basically my, my strategy, as you, as you just um, suggested, was to say, She's right to try to probe this question of what are the subjective preconditions for being able to think of oneself as a member of a public, uh, but that that but that there we should distinguish between 
the idea of uh, of uh, being um, having sort of uh, historically oriented to problems that are thrown up that require intervention, the idea of, and, and not just, you know, fatality, whatever, whatever happens, the idea of collective agency through some kind of a political process and, and uh, use of uh, public power uh, to solve shared problems. I mean, all of these uh, notions, um, I think, are part of the, the, those formal preconditions and I think that they are um, are today widely shared, even by those, let's say, um, various, um, um, let's say, transnational uh, movements uh, that reject the whole existing map of, of states as they're drawn, you know, supporters of a caliphate, for example, um, I, I think that, that, that these um, assumptions of agency, collective will, uh, construction of powers uh, on that basis, these seem to me uh, to be quite widely diffused wherever they originated. And whether they truly originated only in the West is, is not even clear to me. But wherever they originated, I think that those uh, formal preconditions for uh, publicity are widespread, but it is absolutely true um, that people have very different narratives. So that there's a tendency in the global north to think we used to have um, a more robust form of democracy. We used to have uh, public uh, spheres that where we really knew who the public powers were, our states, where our states really could solve our problems and so on. And we are losing that. And so we get a narrative of decline informed by the idea, what do we have to do to get it back? Let's scale up or whatever else, you know, we have to do. Now, um, Hutchings rightly says that narrative doesn't play for really a tremendous, perhaps a majority of the world's population that never felt it had um, had what we think we've had and are, and are lost. And so with, for whom the, the narrative is sort of like, oh, yeah, just another chapter in the long story of disempowerment, subjection to global and foreign powers and so on and so forth. So you can see that... Um, you do, what it would be very crucial for a critical theory of the public sphere that's trying to think transnationally not to falsely universalize the narrative that the sort of sense of historicity and and, and substantive temporality that um, is um, in actual fact um, specific uh, geographically and historically specific to one portion of the population that should be involved um, and that's what I was um, trying to get at with um, with Hutchings I wanted to say yes she's right that as we try to develop public sphere theory on a more um, 
transnational basis and or democratic theory in general, we have to be careful not to universalize a Euro European or Euro American um, historical sensibility. Um, but it doesn't follow that the whole project of public sphere theory is somehow Eurocentric in a way that is sort of irremediable. And, you know, um, because um, it does seem to me that there um, is interest and, and sensibility and all of these, what I call these formal subjective preconditions, are, are quite uh, widely shared. Um, the issue is the, the substantive narratives that we tell. And I use the example of, I keep coming back to this, you can see what's on my mind, <laughs> climate change negotiations right. uh, where, um, you know, you have a very interesting divide between a kind of presentist view that says, um, look at, at, at what the percentages of uh, where carbon emissions are coming from now and, and look at China and look at Brazil and look at how much they're doing. And, um, and, and a, a viewpoint that wants to look historically and say, yeah, but we're new in this game. And don't you see, you guys have been doing this for 200 years. And we have to take that into account when we think about um, how to allocate the costs and burdens uh, and, and so on of, uh, of saving the planet. That would be an example where you've got different narratives, different sense of what the, the relevance of history is or isn't, uh, different notions even of, of time and temporality, uh, and yet um, no trouble at all of, of coming together and having an actual argument about it. There may be trouble of reaching an agreement about it, but there's no trouble having an argument about it where everybody knows exactly what the others are saying and what the, the, the stakes are. Right. I think this is another instance where kind of this book, or even especially here in your reply, uh, you kind of carry out or enact that critical theory method quite effectively um, and holding on to both this need to not overgeneralize or not universalize while still not, you know, throwing out transnational or excuse me, throwing out public sphere theory along the way. Um, I'm wondering perhaps now as the interview is about to come to a close, if you'd like to comment at all on the book in relation to events since its publication. Of course, I'm kind of thinking, and you mentioned it earlier, as I was reading the book this weekend, um, you know, with my eye on what was going on in Greece and the referendum vote. Um, so I wonder if you'd like to comment at all about that or other kind of current things that are going on. You've mentioned climate negotiations and there's a number of other potential issues here. Right. Uh, well, uh, like you, I've been uh, riveted uh, by the uh, unfolding events uh, having to do with Greece and uh, the Eurozone and so on. And um, it is quite a remarkable drama that a critical theory of the public sphere could, I think, do much to illuminate. But I, I, one thing I have to say, um, I think the listeners should... Um, I, I want to just make it clear to, to the lis listeners that um, the public sphere theory is one element of a critical theory. It's not the whole of a critical theory, and it's one element of democratic theory, not the whole of it. So um, 
when when it's used as part of a of a critical theory, one wants to look at um, uh, have a sort of a, a institutional analysis as well as an analysis of how discourse and debate is organized, uh, uh, how public power is organized, how private power is deployed, and and so on. I mean, this is all uh, aimed at giving us a sort of picture of uh, what's happening and the, the ways in which democratic aspirations and other aspirations are uh, systematically blocked uh, for non-accidental reasons having to do with the deep structure of the social formation. So having said that... Um, Here we have uh, the Greek uh, electorate um, giving us a resounding, um, larger, I think, than expected um, Mm -hmm. in in rejection of the austerity policies of the the Troika. And um, that is, you know, this is one of these moments where public opinion has been uh, forming and uh, lots of debate and so on, and then crystallizes in... It's an unusually clear moment where you really have uh, a snapshot of what, how the public thinks about this uh, at one moment. But this is a national public. And um, at the same time, you have public opinion in other parts of the Eurozone that is quite different. I am very struck by um, conversations I have with German friends whom, whom I think of as um, leftists or at least social democrats um, who um, for whom the Greeks are a little bit like the welfare queens that used to be so castigated in the United States they they evade their taxes they they um, they don't work very hard. They retire too early, et cetera, et cetera. All these ways in which they're they're not proper, upstanding, deserving citizens. They don't pay back their debts and so on. So, um, you know, you've got a whole different kind of public opinion that, to, to my ears at least, uh, has a somewhat racialized uh, uh, resonance or echo. It, it, as I say, it reminds me a great deal of welfare queen talk. Uh, in the U.S. um, not so long ago. So uh, there's that. Then you have this sense of, and and here I would would recommend the um, really remarkable uh, writings of Wolfgang Streich, Mm -hmm. especially Buying Time, now available in English, Gekauft in Zeit, as to the sort of, he has this argument about the two peoples. Yeah, on the one hand, there are electorates and and members of, uh, of, the, of the public in the classic democratic sense. But then there are, and it's all, you have to put this in quote, what the markets say, meaning uh, the, the rating agencies, the bondholders, and so on. And this is like a, a dual power situation. Well, m- maybe not really, uh, um, because the, the markets, quote unquote, meaning the bond markets especially, they are the real sovereigns uh, increasingly, and they say what policies are can be even on the table and which are just off the table. So this is a whole um, – you've got, you know, um, competing public opinions within the EU and elsewhere. You've got um, – 
the actual, let's say, highly dysfunctional governance structure of the EU. And here we could talk about all of those, uh, you know, monetary integration in, in advance of um, genuine political integration and so on, all those imbalances. Uh, and then you've got this whole, this whole problem of the, um, of the, uh, the, the capital strike, so to speak, the investors strike, uh, which is, you know, uh, on, on a completely different level, which is just saying we don't care about public opinion. We we speak in another currency. Right. It's the currency of, uh, of interest rates and and bond ratings and so on. And that's the currency that matters as opposed to referenda. And, and you know, so um, I would say that it is. I've only begun to unpack this, but one could go on and on. But I, I believe that um, this whole question of uh, public opinion, national versus transnational uh, versus, um, uh, you know, the the, um, the, the non-discursive uh, forms of power that are wielded, all of this is uh, really ripe for analysis uh, by means of the kind of critical theory, uh, including public sphere theory, that um, we owe, in part at least, to Jürgen Habermas. Thank you. So I was hoping we could perhaps conclude by you telling us a little bit about what you're currently working on. Oh, okay. Um, Well, um, I'm really working on the problem of capitalism. And... um, Capitalism was always, in one way or another, um, the sort of, um, I don't know, um, background uh, of almost everything I've done, and it becomes more or less explicit at different moments. and again, it's very important that the history of public sphere theory in, in Habermas and in the subsequent debates and so on is 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 a theory of uh, democracy and and the and its limits within capitalist modernity. Uh, that's uh, part of the whole story here. Um, but anyway, I I feel that um, the whole question of capitalism today deserves a more frontal uh, engagement. Uh, theoretically and and politically. And um, I've been trying to develop a a way of thinking about um, capitalism that um, owes something uh, to Marx and to Polanyi, for that matter, but that is, um, that takes... Um, that is is concerned with um, situating the capitalist economy that uh, Marxists traditionally focus on in relation to what I think of as its background conditions of possibility um, that are themselves not uh, economic in the first instance, but that are essential for a capitalist economy to function. And one of these is the sort of um, taking up all the important feminist thought about social reproduction as an indispensable precondition for capitalist commodity production. So all the forms of uh, unwaged uh, labor that, that forms the human subjects that become uh, laborers and, uh, in, and that in general 
um, create, maintain uh, uh, social bonds that, uh, that, that are the necessary social background. Also, the ecological, so the climate change thing again <laughs> comes up, mm-hmm. the assumption of a, of a sustainable um, background ecosystem that can supply the material inputs, the uh, energy inputs that can serve as a sink for absorbing the waste and and and, and sustain life, all of this is, has been an uh, an absolutely necessary background condition for a capitalist economy. And then finally, the third one, which in a sense we've already been talking about here for the last hour, um, public power as an indispensable background condition for a private market economy, and all the ways in which the the capitalist economy depends upon public powers in terms of legal frameworks, in terms of democratic legitimacy conditions, in terms of repressive forces and and um, sustaining a money supply, and so on and so forth. And um, my, uh, I, I'm sort of thinking that today um, there is a severe um, potential for a very serious crisis of capitalism, not simply in the sense of um, severe economic strains, bursting bubbles and crashes and depressions and, you know, stagnation and so on and so forth, but also in relation uh, between this sort of foreground economy and its background conditions. I think there's a sense in which uh, the economy has become unmoored. This is a sort of quasi-Polanian point vis-a-vis um, social reproduction, ecology, public power, and is starting to cannibalize and eat up its own background conditions of possibility. And so I'm trying to think about um, this whole problem of a a crisis of capitalism in relation to ecology, social reproduction, and public power. And certainly public sphere theory um, remains a, um, you know, one crucial element for thinking this through. All right. Well, we will we will look forward and hopefully have you back on the podcast at some point in the future as you uh, begin to work through those ideas. So, Nancy Fraser, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books in World Ethics and Politics podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Mm-hmm.